love riding my bike. I love running. I don't care what they think about it. I love it. At that point, when I knew I was going to win, chills just went up and down my entire body. I don't believe there are any good or bad foods. Food is food. I still feel so passionate about getting that record that I'm like, I'm just going to do it. As an athlete, I was like, what's my story or what's your story? What can you learn from it? And what can you teach people? Welcome to the Iron Women Podcast. I'm Alyssa Gadeski. I'm here with Haley Chura. And Haley, it's race week. Oh Yay! my gosh, it's finally here. Have you done your nails yet? Are you no. ready to go? Oh no. no. <laughs> oh I'm gosh. not ready. My nails are nude. They're like natural color. I've got to work on that. Um, I, yeah, no, I do not have all my ducks in a row at all to use a phrase, but it is Ironman Coeur race week. I have a little bit of time, you know, and this race, one of the nice things is that I'm actually driving. Like this is kind of what I would consider a hometown race. It's like about a six hour drive, um, for me, maybe a six and a half hour. Cause I like to stop frequently. Um, and there's like this really good bakery. That's only like 30 minutes out of town. That's usually my first stop. <laughs> and, um, you gotta have treats for the road, right? But, um, so it takes me a little while to get there, but it's the closest thing I have to a hometown race. I am feeling really good. Uh, the weather forecast, I haven't actually looked at it, but from what people have told me, it looks good. Like not 103. I mean, I think it's someone said 80, which I was like, Ooh, that's a little warm for me. Cause I think, I mean, yesterday I just rode home from the gym and it was like 49 and rainy, but so 80 is <laughs> a lot warmer than that. But, um, but you know, not 103 quarter lane is a course that really suits me really well. I have uh, four athletes who are also racing. Um, I think it's, it's going to be a good time, you know, and, and I just look forward to the opportunity and seeing what I can do. And, uh, the bike is ready. I did, you know, I have the wheels on it mm -hmm. and I have it, like I got picked it up from the bike shop. So that's always like a big stress and good. that is checked off. So, so the bike's nails are done, so to speak. Yeah. The bike, I got the bike. I know the bike got a nice, like, <laughs> the bike's manicure and pedicure is complete. <laughs> yes. And now I just got to work on my own body and, um, resting, recovering, thinking good thoughts. Um, I will say this morning, my friend Megan, who I went to the, you know, era's tour with sent me this like beautiful article, um, is in the New York times about like a psychiatrist talking about the Taylor Swift and the era's tour. And I'm like sobbing as I'm reading it, which I'm like, okay, is this like, is this, uh, Ironman race week? Like, I feel like this is an oversized emotional reaction, but it was just so beautiful about, um, you know, how Taylor Swift makes us feel and why we're all obsessed with it. And I'm like, it truly captured how I feel. And I do think, you know, she, she is someone that I'm going to be channeling <laughs> during my Ironman, which I think is a funny, funny thought, but you know, whatever works for us. Yeah. I think always channel, channel Taylor during Ironman, during anything. I think that is a great strategy. I know I have been channeling Taylor Swift in a different way these last few weeks. Um, I will update our listeners because it is not a race week coming up um, this week or next week for me, as originally it, it was planned because Haley, womp womp, injury has struck. Um, and it was about a little over three weeks ago, I was running a routine treadmill run that I've run hundreds of times probably in the last decade and stepped on the treadmill and heard a loud pop in my knee, oh, Haley. And, how loud? Wait, like uh, how loud is this pop? <laughs> I mean, it was loud enough. I feel like I heard it over the sound of the woodway, which is very loud. Did you have headphones in too? And you heard it over the sound no, of cruel but it summer? Was going, it was <laughs> yeah, aptly timed Taylor Swift to like soundtrack to the entire event. Um, but yeah, so I heard a pop. I, I was home alone and with the treadmill in the basement. And I will say, um, I will say the, uh, the interval right before it, I felt like a twinge of something. And I was like, that didn't feel great, but it felt, you know, like it felt okay enough to keep going. So, but I actually will say that it, I put the emergency like stopper on my shirt after that. Um, because it is like a huge fear of mine. That's something I would fall or like get thrown off the treadmill and be home alone. And like, I don't know why. And I always keep my hair very tight on the treadmill for the, but I just have like these visions of like my hair or my outfit or something getting stuck in it. It's like a very weird fear of mine. So anyway, after that, I like put the emergency stopper on and then, yeah, I jumped on for that interval, heard the pop and immediately like dove at the interface to make sure that emergency stop came off. And it did, it worked like it's supposed to, which was great. Um, 
but I immediately couldn't put any weight on that leg and I knew that wasn't good. Um, I will say the pain was like, not, it wasn't like super painful. I just literally couldn't use my leg. Like it just wasn't doing what the job that it would normally do. Um, and so over the last couple of weeks, I have been fortunate that I have, do have good medical care here with the Dartmouth medical system and some doctors who have been looking out for me to make sure things move along in a speedy fashion and we could get answers sooner than later. And Haley, the diagnosis came in that I tore my posterior medial um, root of the meniscus. So I essentially, you know, initially you hear meniscus and while it's not great to damage or tear your meniscus, a lot of times I think people think like, and I, I have had meniscus problems um, in the past and like a lot of times you can kind of get through it enough, right? And you just have to deal with like a little bit here and there and then you can kind of see how it is or maybe get it all taken care of like at a later date. Um, this is something that is a bit more serious because I essentially tore the meniscus off the bone. And so the meniscus is kind of just like free floating now. Um, and it's no longer doing its job. So now my, my femur and my tibia are basically like bone on bone, um, which is not a good situation. And if anyone remembers right before the Tokyo Olympics, any track super fans out there, Aisha Pratt Lear had this injury the week before she was heading to Tokyo. Um, and kind of similar, like just a freak accident. She was kind of, she was just doing something she's done a hundred times and pop, it went. So, um, I had a few meetings with doctors Haley and the first reaction was definitely, this should be taken care of immediately, you know, save your knees for the future. You're an athlete, this, we can repair this. Let's do it. And, you know, I was kind of like, well, let's talk about when we can do this. Right. <laughs> so like, I got an adventure race, a five day adventure yeah. race next week. <laughs> Like, and a really that. big one in Sweden in a few months. Yeah, I was like, I have some things on my calendar that I kind of want to do first. What every and... doctor loves to hear. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> I have other <right>? plans. <laughs> and so we, I mean, it, it, this was a process, right? But again, I have really good doctors here. I trust them fully. And I think um, after kind of looking at things and talking it through, we basically agreed that a pretty good plan of action, not like the most risk averse plan, but a good, you know, not tremendously risky plan would be to allow me to attempt to rehab the knee, um, take 99% of my races for the summer off the schedule, um, be quite conservative with the training I do and get myself to the one water race in Sweden in August. And, um, I mean, for better or worse, it's like a heavy swim race and swimming is the first thing that came back. I always, I'm so, so grateful to be, be a triathlete in times like this, because so many times you can be swimming when you can't do other impact activities. And I mean, for me and my swimming capabilities and looking at one water, like it's only a good thing to have me swimming more right at this point. So, um, I stayed in the pool. I stayed super fit that way. Um, slowly have built in some biking and, um, I'm also really grateful to, the lever movement system, they sent me, um, uh, they got a lever to me very quickly with all of this going on. And I was able to put that on the treadmill and have been able to run using that and a little bit without, um, but that has and then been, you're not, like, you're not putting your full body weight on, yes. on your knee and your meniscus and your like, so it helps, helps that. Yeah. Yep. And so you can kind of adjust the amount of body weight that it takes off. It's like a little bungee pulley system. It's very cool. Um, and it, it is a great tool. So right now, Haley, it is, like I said, a little over three weeks out, I'm not feeling like hundred percent confident about anything other than my willingness to give this like my total, uh, like best I can effort to get myself fit and like ready to race one water. Um, you know, I have a really good coach with Hillary Biscay. I have Kate Ligler doing my strength. I have a really good PT, really good doctors. Like we have a team and um, that's the best I can do, right? That's the best we all can do at any time. And so I am very fortunate to have the resources and the time to put towards the rehab for this. Um, I don't think it's always, well, I know it's not what would be recommended for many people, but 
I will say the doctor did tell me that Mickey Mantle played his entire baseball career without a meniscus. So he wasn't saying it can't be done. Uh, (laughs) And that's all I needed to hear. Um, But I do have a surgery date for September. Womp womp. So um, that will be, I'm sure, podcast in itself to like be, you guys will be hearing about that all through September and the, yeah, I'll be like fully into the, the Kona lead up um because i'll be it's a terrible time to be exercising anyway (laughs) no one wants to exercise in september october i mean you're gonna be fine you're not missing out on anything but Uh, um no you'll be just in time for ski season you'll be back at it so it's gonna it's gonna work out just great um i am sorry this happened but I I'm, I'm hopeful for you. I am hopeful. I feel like when we interviewed Caroline Gleick after she climbed Everest, I mean, it's different, but she climbed it with like a torn ACL and true. then got the surgery after I'm like, that's true. I, I am not someone who understands orthopedics that much, but I understand that the human body is amazing. And this isn't your first rodeo. You've done a lot of, you know, long endurance events. You have a lot of other traits that are very, very, very good, um, for endurance events besides like who needs a meniscus, you know, yeah. can go with that one. Alyssa Gadeski doesn't need one either. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> I'm pulling for you, but I, you know, I'm glad you can still get in the pool, run with the lever, you know, ride the bike a bit. It is nice bike riding time of year. I mean, I True. couldn't believe even this morning I drove to the pool at, you know, before five 30 and it was bright light out. And I'm like, Oh, this is so nice. I love this time of year. So still get to enjoy this. You're not, yeah, you know, I'm not exactly. And so all I wanted was a chance and I got that. So thank you. And you have heard me kind of go through some ups and downs over the past couple of weeks. So thank you for being a sounding board there and yeah, all the positive thoughts, people send them my way. Yeah. And also send us your mailbags, which we did oh, yeah. get one. We have one for this week. Iron women podcast at gmail.com. Uh, do you want to read this week's mailbag question? Yes. So this comes in from Gwen and Gwen lives in Norway, the same town as Lottie Miller. And actually this is really cool. It no longer gets totally dark here at night. So it would be a great place to practice my night swimming. It sounds like, because it wouldn't be super dark. Um, but Gwen does have some questions first two. So she has two. One, ask Haley if she would compete in the PTO US Open if she gets an invoice like she did for Abitha. Yes, actually, I um, I applied for a wild card for the US Open in Milwaukee, which I think, is, you know, it's early August is when that race is 100K distance. Um, right now, I think my PTO ranking is like in the 40s. Um, so I have dropped a little bit. I So I don't know if I'll get an invite. And I also don't know if I'll get a wild card because um, the criteria are, you know, a lot of times they want more like young up and coming (laughs) athletes, which is not me. I love being a veteran. Being a veteran is great. Um, and you know, but I, I try to leverage, I'm like, Hey, I have a podcast. (laughs) You want me, I'll talk about it. Um, so we'll see, we'll see. I don't know when I'll find out that one is a little bit more logistically possible for me to, you know, plan a trip to Milwaukee versus planning that trip to Ibiza. Plus there's (laughs) no, I'm not, I already went to Taylor Swift. And so, um, I just, you know, I, I don't have a big conflict that weekend. I'm totally free PTO. If you want to invite me, I will uh, be there. And Gwen's second question is for me, it was what, was the under eye product I mentioned in one of the recent episodes. So this is when I went on my rant about all of the stickers, essentially I've been putting on my face for wrinkles and other things and the under eye stickers, which I will say, I can't even take credit for these. Everyone. This is a Meredith Kessler secret. She may or may not ever find out that I'm blowing this up on the iron woman feed, but um, you know, Meredith is known for being really fast and iron man champion, 70.3 champion, but she's also known for always looking good and like being put together. Right. So you can trust these everyone. And we will put a link in the show notes to the Amazon where these, um, they're like gold crystal collagen, gold powder, (laughs) eye mask. You can get 30 pairs on Amazon for $11 and 88 cents. So it comes out to 20, 20 20 cents each. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good investement, everyone. So oh, okay. oh, you can even actually, oh, wait, that's so weird. If you buy a 30, 30, it's the 20 cents each. If you buy 60, they're 43 cents each. I don't understand the <laughs> math. The 20, on, yeah. <laughs> yeah. The math on these, it, you know, you know, it doesn't pay to buy an excess oh. bulk. <laughs> um, I'm wondering. Yeah, but no, yeah, it looks like, um, I mean, they are, it looks like they're worth trying. So hopefully Gwen can get them in Norway. Oh Yeah. Shoot. Well, 
Um, I'm sure they have something similar, but, um, how long do you leave them on? And like, when do you use these? So, I mean, Meredith, I've only used it. I've left it on overnight, but I think oh, you can whoa. do it like whenever. Overnight? I thought it was yeah. like 10 minutes. Well, I fall asleep in them. I just, I mean, oh. I, I'm also not known for like reading instructions on these things, but, um, I don't know if they have a recommended time on them. I oh, I thought it was like after that. you go swimming in the morning, you'd like put them on while you're blow drying your hair or something like that. And then you go to work. I think you can do that. I okay. think for sure. Yeah. Um, but I mean, more is more. So in the wrinkle prevention department for me. So. <laughs> Again, I see no wrinkles. I see no under eye puffiness. I mean, maybe uh, I need to try these. Maybe. Oh, I'm on the pro panel this week um, in Coeur d'Alene on Friday at 1 p.m. If anyone is around, come say hi. Um, and see if I have any goggle marks or yeah. maybe I Amazon primed myself, some of these, uh, under eye <laughs> collagen things. And you'll be like, Haley, I just admire your under eyes <laughs> and hopefully my nails by then. Yes. Uh, but thanks to Gwen for the questions and you can send in your own questions to the mailbag at ironwomenpodcast at gmail.com. And Haley, we have a really special fun talk, fun I say kind of like, it's, it's a little bit of an emotional talk. I will say, um, this week. Well, I have all the emotions going. I cry <laughs> over everything right now. So yeah. So bring it on. Yes. Um, so this week we are talking to record-breaking athlete and author Steph Jagger. I first met Steph in 2020 at the new nest retreat when we did a goal setting workshop together. So you'll hear me fangirl a bit about that time because that was kind of when I really, um, you know, first met Steph and realized all the good she had to offer people. We dig into that goal setting process a bit and her first book, Unbound, A Story of Snow and Self-Discovery in this talk. But the main event of our chat with her is her new book, Everything Left to Remember, My Mother, Our Memories and a Journey Through the Rocky Mountains, which is a beautiful and heart-wrenching and inspirational memoir that she wrote from the journey she takes with her mom, who has dementia, through our national parks, they're camping and adventuring along the way. And um, yeah, I think I just, I hope everyone really enjoys this chat with Steph. I think it has a lot of valuable tidbits for us. So we'll have that up next. Steph, welcome to the Iron Women podcast. Your visit is like, I feel overdue because for sure you are a true Iron Woman by any definition of the word. Um, your first book, Unbound, we do want to touch on eventually because I think there's a lot there, but let's start with your latest book. It's called Everything Left to Remember, My Mother, Our Memories, and a Journey Through the Rocky Mountains. In this book, you take the readers on a journey with you and your mother camping, and your mother has Alzheimer's. This is a very raw and honest look at not only a very vulnerable relationship with mother-daughter, but it also has that extra layer of complexity. So I read your first book, Unbound, a couple of years ago, which chronicled your life more centered around an athletic pursuit, right? And so this is very, very different. And you're now deep in the work of post-publication life as an author. And with a topic so different, like, has it felt really different? and in what ways? First of all, thank you for having me. And I'm so excited to be in conversation with you. And this is, this feels like a long time coming because, because we got to meet in person a handful of years ago, but yeah, I mean the, the two books and post publication life, I mean, there's things about, um, about it that feel about the second book and the journey that I've taken publication wise through that, that feel, you know, wildly different than the first book unbound. There's also things that feel um, very similar. And, and I think I was really excited to, to talk to you because so much of the foundational learning that has kind of assisted me through my life in, in writing, in the creative world, in um, publication, in running a business, and, and eventually in the landscape of, of moving through um, Alzheimer's with my mother, really, really the foundation of how I've gotten through that started as, as an athlete, started in really understanding myself as an endurance athlete. Like how is it that we endure and what is the different kind of um, grit and resilience that's used in like long haul events, flows, finding flow state. I mean, I can go into all the details of that, but um, as opposed to the kind of grit, like I used to be a rugby player in university. So there's a different kind of grit of like just preparing for high speed impact. <laughs> and so the, the, the things that feel similar to me are 
you know, how is it that we go through these very, very long journeys? And how is it that we stay as present as possible? What are the lessons for us to learn? What are the initiations for us that occur inside of those things? You know, the first book chronicles, you know, 11 months of skiing. Um, the second book is just, is, is a two week snapshot of a journey. But of course, you know, the Alzheimer's journey is, you know, seven to 15 years for most people. So th there are deep similarities. I also think there's a similarity in um, both our memoirs. So this is, this is um, a familiarity and a similarity of really, I mean, a lot of people call it navel gazing, but just this really deep under wanting, craving a really deep understanding of my own story first and foremost, before it gets turned into, into a book. And so um, there is a similarity in just the way that I grapple with self, I think that is, um, is key. The differences are, you know, one is a maiden voyage as a 29 year old woman kind of going to conquer the mountains. And I think in everything left to remember, it really shifted to, you know, from conquering to being with, how do I be with? Yeah. And so, so much of this, oh, go ahead. But so much of the story in everything left to remember, it does take place in Montana. And that's where I currently live. And, and your writing really vividly describes the natural landscape and, and also like the history of that land being very respectful to the indigenous people who were there before you and, and, and how seeing that nature impacted both you and your mom, um, it actually reminded me to take a moment and look around and appreciate where I am. So I, I do thank you for that. Sometimes we need someone else's perspective to kind of remind us. And, and then I guess that's my question. Like how, how different was it to watch your mom's reaction and to places like Yellowstone and Glacier National Park compared to when you might have previously visited on your own? Yeah. I mean, Gosh, my mom's reaction, it's really interesting. I think people with cognitive decline and memory issues, you know, one of the, the gifts is they don't remember. So they are experiencing things like genuinely, authentically experiencing things for the first time. Now, um, my mom hadn't actually been to Montana, so it was the first time, but she had seen rivers, she had seen mountains, she had been in big nature, you know, all of those things. And so that felt like she was experiencing that part for the first time. So there is this um, unbelievable childlike quality of, of awe and surprise and wonder and, you know, overwhelm on the side of overwhelm that's, um, that's on the awe and, and wonder side, like the, the good side of it. Um, and so you do get this kind of like fresh eyes of, of it all. And because of where she was in her in her progression, you know, we we were moving probably a little bit slower through those places than you know the 29, 30, 35 year old me, you know, would have been moving. Like I usually move through those places at a clip. Like I've got a mission, I've got something to accomplish, I've got a trail I want to hike, I've got some kind of box that I want to tick off of the to-do list. And that really didn't exist um, with my mother. And so, you know. I'm glad that I'm, I'm, I'm really touched whenever I talk to someone from Montana, I'm always like, Ooh, did I get it right? Like, did I honor the place in a certain way? And, and I'm always really touched when people are like, you've captured something that, that is really deeply familiar to me or reminded me of the beauty of this place. Um, and, and I think what ended up happening was, you know, that nature, that, that landscape really became like a third character almost in the story. And it's funny, I, I didn't, I didn't really even realize this until much later on, someone was reflecting back to me some of the metaphors that I was using that were like similar to how you would describe a female body, like the bruising of the sky and various different things. And I thought, oh my gosh, right? Like this really was a third, like an elder. It was, it, that's, that's how I felt. I felt my mom and I needed that kind of wisdom, like something to hold us as we shifted and cracked and reformed. And, and I, I feel like the landscape of, you know, Montana and Idaho and Wyoming, but mostly, Mon it's mostly Montana that we're in, um, really helped us do that. Yeah. And one of the other themes um, in the book is about kind of shape-shifting of tradition and ritual and how those things kind of evolve. And I'm glad you said, you know, you've made the tie to kind of your athlete life within this story as well, because 
Um, I was hoping you weren't going to think I was like grasping for straws because I do think there's like a strong connection there. And, you know, the book obviously parallels that shape-shifting with the rituals that you have with your mom and that she has in her life and things like that. But I think athletes can relate to tradition and rituals, right? quite well. Um, and so as we evolve as athletes, those kind of change with ourselves, right? Whether it's because we're aging, um, our sports change, gear changes, right? Like all of those kinds of things create different rituals and, and like an evolution of the traditions that we carry as athletes. So you bring up that having empathy during this process is like, is a really important part of it. And so do you think you know, how can we fit that piece in as athletes to recognizing those changes? Yeah, I, I you know, I, I do. I'm, I don't think it's grasping for straws at all. I mean, I think there's a lot of different ways that we can come into um, the shifts and various different initiations in our, in our lives. And, and we can come into them with a different foundation of, of skills. You know, I think the arts, for example, um, could, could provide something similar. Um, and a variety of other things. But for me, the doorway really was athleticism. And it's funny, I just I just wrote a piece about this for outside, actually, um, you know, correlating like all of the lessons and learnings that I knew um, about endurance athleticism and, and how they've really helped me with the grieving process. So I, in my life, like, <laughs> call me lazy or call me really efficient. I like to take a skill that I have developed and kind of honed over time in one area of my life. So we could use um, finding flow states as an example. Okay. So that, that happened for me first and foremost inside of athleticism. Like where is, where do my skills perfectly meet the challenge of the terrain that I'm in? Where is it not too easy that I'm too bored or too challenging that I'm scared? You know, like where is that edge, not comfort zone, but like edge. And once I find a skill like that, I don't really want to learn a whole bunch of new skills in my life. I want to be able to transfer. I want to be able to transfer those skills. So, so I do like to learn things just for everybody, you know, but, but I, I also get really, really excited about where I've, where I've learned something and how to understand where it's applicable in say my emotional life, where it's applicable inside of like the business landscape that I'm in, where it's applicable inside of creativity, et cetera. And so I feel like that, that has allowed me to like keep a ritual. So, so let's just say if, if we're using flow states as an example, like the finding of flow states is really, is really fun for me. And so I want to keep that as a ritual that I'm engaged in all throughout my life to assume that it's only going to happen three hours in on the ski hill. And that's the only way I can ever find that is extraordinarily limiting. And if I get an injury as I age, if skiing all of a sudden becomes too hard for my knees and I want to switch to cross country, like I'm cutting off that ability to find flow states. If I'm, if I'm defining it so narrowly. So I, I really like the idea of saying, okay, this is the thing that is my go-to, that is my ritual, that is um, the thing that I'm, I'm kind of searching for. And I search for it everywhere. And I think that's the, the main thing for me that I've used from my, my time in athleticism is, is, you know, what, first of all, what are those skills? And, you know, where else can I be, you know, actively engaging with them and using them in my life? Steph, you write about growing up and slowly realizing that your parents kept these pretty big, important things from you and maybe even didn't set you up for success in some areas because you were a girl. And it seems like learning more about your mom's story kind of helped you work through some of your own anger. And so is that something that you'd recommend other people do? Because it, that seems really scary and like it'd be easier to just go on being mad at our parents. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think it's, I think it's a, I think it's a both end, you know, um, first of all, like if the question is, you know, do, do I recommend that other people like excavate their lives in a particular way to understand their, you know, emotional realms, you know, uh, yes, absolutely. That's, that's one of our bodies. I, I actually think it's um, doing that has probably made me a better athlete um, because there's, th th this is, this is maybe going to be a little bit of an esoteric way of answering it, but if we think of our, our bodies as, as something that's, as an instrument that is running energy, 
right? And, and, and typically we're thinking about that in an athletic realm. Like I need to eat so many calories because my body is going to run a particular amount of energy that I need to replace that as I go. Like we're thinking about it from a physical instrument. Uh, our emotions are also energy. They're energy in motion. And so if we are not excavating and looking at the, the places that we've kind of like stored them or pushed them or like, yeah, that anger, I don't want to look at, I'm going to toss it down over here and just stay up in my head about it and just keep moving my body. Um, very typically, if we think about it like energy, our energy is not going to, not going to be moving efficiently. We're going to be avoiding a particular area. So I use the example of like my hips all the time. I've never in my life, when I was a runner, when I was a triathlete, when I was not doing those things and I was engaging in more yoga, whether I was a rugby player, whether I was a skier, whether I just was taking time off and like becoming a gardener, I've never, ever, ever been able to do a runner's lunge and put my elbow to the ground. That's just, that's never been a mobility that I have had in my hips. I, and I, and I still do that stretch. Like I still do that move through that stretch and that flow as a warm up before I go cycling, before I go to the gym, like a variety of different things. This whole last couple of years, as you said, I've had a really, really big focus on understanding what the energy and motion, what the emotion of anger and fear and resentment and frustration, you know, about a lot of this stuff has been, and, and grief and sorrow. I've really been doing this work and I've been doing it with a coach. I've been doing it with a somatic um, therapist, really working on what is that energy system and how does it move and how do I allow it to move? Just like I want my limbs to move freely as an athlete. Lo and behold, about nine months ago, I was at the gym and I was moving through the flow and I went down and plunk, elbow on the ground. I thought, that's weird. I've never been able to do that. And my trainer looked at me and she's like, you've never been able to do that. Like in 20 years, in 40 years, <laughs> you know, maybe when I was a baby and, and I can still do it to this day. And this is not, I did not do anything new in my physical routine. This to me is an excavation. Like there was not enoughness. There was fear. There was a whole bunch of stuff living in my hips that all of a sudden I now have access to so that my physical energy can move in a completely different way. And this has transformed quite literally how I do a squat. Like my mobility is different. And I credit that to the, uh, to, to the you know, foundational um, physical efforts I've put in, but, but more so the emotional excavation. So as athletes, I think it's really important. This is, this is a, an energy system that is running in tandem with our physicality. And if we want to be peak athletes, we either have to go, I don't feel pain. I completely disassociate. It's just mind over matter over physicality, or we can go, you know what? I'm a whole human being. And I bring all of myself along on these journeys, on these trails, on these mountains. And I am an extraordinarily efficient machine because I've got all of myself here. And I, I prefer that route. I prefer that route as, a, as an athlete. And I prefer that route as a person who, when they're not engaging in athletic endeavors, is in relationship with people is, you know, if we're disassociating in one place, we're disassociating others. So if we've got that happening in our athletics, it's probably happening in our relationships as well. So I, I like to bring my whole self to the table as much as possible. It feels like in our current time, uh, society is starting to recognize that, right? Like, I mean, there's more conversations around mental health and the importance of recovery. And I feel like so much of recovery centers on like sleep and, and things like that. And it's like, okay, but while you're awake, like also be paying attention to these things, but are you inspired? Like, do you think your time as an athlete would have been different if it was today where there are more conversations around, you know, mental health, making sure your relationships are in a good place, like things like that. That's a really, really good question. I, I'm not sure. I, I mean, it, it probably, yes. I mean, the answer is yes, it would have been different. I don't know exactly. I don't know exactly how, um, I, you know, in order to kind of go back and, and, and relive things, I, I do think it will shift and is shifting already. Um, my athletic, my athleticism now and going forward. Um, and, and I, I think it's such a phenomenal thing. I do think you're right. Like we are really getting there. Like what we used to think of as, as rest and like mindfulness 
you know, a lot of that was, you're right, like sleeping and eating properly. And the mindfulness practices, many of them began in like a bypassing, like, let's just get your mind, like you can just live here and just let thoughts go by and, and that's it. And just kind of ignore this. We're really beginning to connect those places now. There's a, there's a beautiful definition of self-care, which we could, we could replace like with rest and recovery by Susan Raffo. That is self-care is a constant practice of ensuring more pain does not accumulate. And so um, you see this in the, in the athletic world, right? We're, we're tightening our muscles, you know, quite a lot. And so self-care and, and rest and recovery involves loosening those muscles, right? That's how we move through this, this kind of like um, contraction and, and expansion. And, and I think about this is the same thing inside of our um, mental, emotional, and energetic lives is where are the places that we've been bracing, coiling, holding tension, avoiding, et cetera, that we can then begin to kind of uncoil, unbrace, soften um, inside of the, the, the other, you know, our rest and recovery. And so I think when we pair those two things from a physical and emotional level, I think we've got, you know, an, extraordinary things that we can accomplish. And Steph, so many of us are probably going to encounter the challenges of helping our parents age with dignity. And you've had that added complexity of your mom being di diagnosed with Alzheimer's at a relatively young age. And you've yeah. talked about how being an athlete and being an endurance athlete in particular has helped you navigate that. I'm also curious about you know, the other side as us, like just humans in the world. And as we encounter, uh, people who are, who might have memory loss. And I think you tell a really beautiful story about David from Georgia, the Yellowstone horseback rider, um, who was not only like dreamboat good looks, but <laughs> also had this incredible patience, um, with your mom during that ride. So do you have advice for, for all of us, you know, helping, either our parents or just other people in society uh, who might be living with memory loss. I, I really, really do have advice on this. And I think it's critical and important. Um, the, the, the primary image that we have in our heads societally um, of Alzheimer's and dementia and various different types of cognitive decline is typically a person who is in very old age and who is in very late stages of the disease. So has lost a lot of social functioning, maybe has lost language, a lot of mobility, maybe they're in a wheelchair or a care home, right? This is the, this is the typical image that we have. There are, um, first and foremost, I think it's so important, my, my number one tip is that if this is going on within your family, within you, et cetera, that you, that you share, that you openly talk about it, that you, um, you know, bring, bring family members and community members, you know, in on what's going on, because my experience is, has been hands down. Any single person that I told on that trip, David, David, the horseback riding guide from Montana included, every single person that I've told, you know, was extraordinary, what was patient, was open, was curious, was how can I help? I mean, this is um, that I've never been met with anything but that. So that is, that's my first thing. I, I remember there was at the beginning stages of the disease. So, so this is what I, what I say is, you know, my mom was in her, she was probably 65 when she first started showing signs. And so, um, even if you're getting that's, that's pretty early, even if you're developing this disease in your late seventies or eighties, there's, there's a handful of years where there's still a lot of that person remaining. And so this is tip number number two is take advantage of those years. You know, this is one of the reasons that I took my mom on the trip when I did, because I'd watched my grandmother move through this disease. And I knew there was a window of time that my mother and I would have, that there was a lot of her available physically, emotionally, her personality, you know, and I, and I really wanted to soak all of that up. So that was, that was another, and, and, you know, that she was able, capable of doing the trip. Um, so those are, those are two of my suggestions. I know a lot of people, I think this is really smart. I know a lot of people who carry cards that just say something like the person that I'm with has, um, memory issues or cognitive decline, because sometimes for the person themselves to, 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 to have it, like, let's say we're out at a restaurant and my, my mom is going to place an order and then she's going to forget what she's placed. And then she's maybe going to get a bit frustrated that she got delivered a Caesar salad 
when she thought she ordered a hamburger. Like this is the kind of thing that can happen. Now, I don't necessarily want to embarrass my mom or have her have have her confront the fact that she's got Alzheimer's over and over and over again. So I might have a card that I hand to the server when I arrive just to kind of keep them informed. I've seen that I've seen people do this in multiple places. I wish I had carried those on the trip when I went on it. Um, and I think it's extraordinarily helpful. There's a, there's a great story of my mom going to the community center for fitness classes pretty early on in her progression. And they, they, my family didn't tell, we didn't tell the instructor, we didn't tell the community center, you know, it, she just would go and she, she would have a great time and she'd be doing the fitness, but she often would forget, kind of forget the rules and the social norms. And she'd sometimes think she was the instructor or she'd go into the middle of the circle. And, you know, she was, there's a video of her. She's just ecstatic and she's, she's, she's cheering everybody on and she's doing the moves, but she also is a little bit disruptive. Now, she was, uh, there was a complaint made that there was a woman being disruptive and she was asked not to come back. And so she didn't come back. If they had told the community center, if they had told the group of people what was going on, I highly doubt that would have happened. And so that, that is so critical because that hour of time is great for her, but that hour of time was like my dad's haircut. You know, that hour of time was his ability to, you know, meet up with his buddy for, for, a walk and be able to like talk about some of the stuff that was going on. Like that was critical. And so I think inside of our community, it's really, really important to start, um, you know, embracing this. This is, this is everywhere. I don't talk to very many people where there isn't some extension, like, yep, yeah, I had an uncle, I had a cousin or yes, you know, my mother, my grandmother. And so I think we've just got to become aware of what this looks like. And this, this can really be a highly functioning Jane Fonda fit looking 65, 70 year old woman who's acting a little bit odd in uh, exercise class. And Steph, you know, so much of being an athlete is about like putting forth the effort, completing the process, getting to the finish line, right? Like checking your boxes and doing it all right. And like, you know, if you put forth the effort in this, even if we do everything quote right. And we take your tips to heart and we're doing this all, you know, as best we can, there's still never going to be like that finish line with that medal. And it's like, congratulations, you made it right. Like, good job. You're doing it right. So because something like Alzheimer's is just so out of our control, it was, you know, like you had, you could do everything right. And you had no control over everything at the same time. And so was that really hard to overcome and accept? Yeah, I mean, there's there's two things with that. For me, I mean, there is a finish line, but there's a finish line metaphorically for all of us. But but really what I was thinking about in regards to, and what I still think about in regards to my mother and the kind of goal that I have, it's not um, a, a finish line or a ribbon or, you know, like it would be in in some of the, the athletic pursuits that I've had, but it it really is, what is the way, are there ways to connect, to, to experience a genuine feeling of connection? That's the goal that I have with her and have had with her for eight years now. And, and that has shifted. The ways in which we connect has shifted. So a lot of times the ways in which we connect is shared memories, right? Remember that time that dad blew up the barbecue because he was roasting hot dogs the wrong way or whatever it is. And, and more and more connection is just the two of us sitting in silence, you know, holding each other's hands and just being able to feel her kind of pulse move through her fingertips when I go visit her and we may not even talk. And, and I'm, I'm all there. My mental, emotional, physical body is all there and I can feel that connection. And, and that's the ribbon, you know, that's the goal that I've, that I've got. And so that, that's, you know, one component of it, I think, When I, when I think about the journey as a whole, I mean, that's it, that, that's really, it, it's always, I feel like the way my athletics and maybe my entire life has shifted is really, and, and we I remember, you know, we talked about this when, when, we, when we did the um, event with, with Noon Hydration, that the way that I think about goal setting has, has really dramatically shifted away from, this is the thing that I wanna do so that I have this medal so that when I, when, and only when I have this medal, um, I can call myself a amazing athlete. 
And I really have shifted that script of goal setting um, and focused it on like the feelings that I want to feel. Like I, I want to feel alive. I want to feel connected to the people around me. Um, I want to feel the totality of myself present in different moments. And so if those are the things, if that really is the goal, then what are the things that I might do differently or the things I might sign up for, or the things I might say yes to, or the ways in which I'm going to go about them in the world? Um, what are those going to be? And, and I think that's, that's the totality. I mean, I've, I've gotten into, you know, biking a lot more recently and I don't, I don't have any race in mind. I don't, I don't have any, you know, I have some like missions. My dad and I are going to do a hundred mile um, journey, you know, over the, uh, in June, uh, over Father's Day weekend, but it, it really is not going to be about time or even distance. If we don't make it, it's, it's for me, I, I want to feel alive and joyful as much as possible on that, on that bike ride. And I want to feel connected to him on the other side of, of what has been a lot of separation through, through COVID and borders and a lot of, and a lot of grief. So that that's, that's, I, I can't even remember what the question is, but that's where I've landed is, you know, the, the goal for me is, can I be really truly like, can I be present? Can I, can I feel the totality of myself as much as possible inside the different um, things that I do? And, and then what are the ways I want to bring that alive? Whether that be um, through biking, whether that be through walking the dogs through big, big long trails, you know, a whole bunch of different things. Yeah. And you seem to note that, you know, even if someone had a similar goal of being alive, that that might look different for them. I, Alyssa touched earlier on your book, uh, your first book unbound and, how that chronicled your journey to set a world record, uh, for skiing 4 million vertical feet, which is just like, it feels like a made up number. Um, and, but you've, you've been quoted as saying adventure is being and doing anything that is just outside your comfort zone. And that's different for every person. So whether it's being alive, whether it's finding adventure, um, like, why do you think people should, should define their own their own terms. Well, I mean, I think, I think we're cutting ourselves off from a lot of different experience. If we, if we look at, if, if somebody looks at what I've done, like, Oh, okay. I guess, I guess accessing the feeling of aliveness is only possible if I've got a year of time, if I'm a, if I'm a decent skier, if I, you know, have some financial resources to be able to do a trip like that. Like, so I guess that's not available to me. And I think that's why it's important to define it as an individual comfort zone and comfort zone physically, emotionally, mentally, like all those edges, because someone's comfort zone, I mean, that's not where my comfort zone started, right? Like my comfort zone initially in my twenties was like, geez, I wonder if I could, you know, do a multi-day trip over to a different mountain and ski in a different resort and see what that feels like. And, you know, it kind of grew from there. And I think it goes back to what I said earlier is that the more we can look at the variety of different comfort zones we have, whether that be in our physical pursuits or elsewhere in our lives, the more we're able to kind of nudge up on that feeling of aliveness. Now that could happen, you know, inside of a pottery class that could happen um, inside of, you know, traveling to a different state as opposed to a different country, a different city as opposed to a different state. Like everyone's going to have a difference there. And I think if we look out into the world and have, have a, a couple, I mean, it's, it's a good thing to have inspiration, but if we're looking at other people and the huge pursuits that they've done and kind of go, I guess that's the only way, then we're missing out on what's actually happening inside of our own lives. And I, I often talk about this, that, you know, it, it wasn't the, the 4 million feet wasn't what made me feel alive. It was the foot by foot by foot. And so I think about that, like th those are those can be ordinary things. Like, can I find that in, in the ordinary moments of my life? I mean, a lot of the feedback that I've had about both books actually has, has the, the negative feedback. I often go in and read my like two-star reviews. I kind of love it because it gives me, when, when I look at them as a whole, it really tells me a story about, about how uncomfortable we are with our own kind of how, how much we value things like speed as opposed to slowness, how much we 
we value the, the spectacular things as opposed to something that might be a little bit more mundane or, or ordinary. You know, a lot of the feedback uh, on the on the two star side that I get for everything left to remember is like, I kept waiting for something more to happen. And like, I don't disagree with people. Like we didn't get eaten by bears in the woods. Like we didn't run out of gas and have to do like, you know, the, the only thing that happened was we had to do a long walk through the landscape of Alzheimer's. And that is, can be, boring and ordinary and banal and to search for aliveness and for beauty inside of those places like that's an endurance event and and that's life and if 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 we're kind of waiting for the big things to happen inside of our our books that we're reading but also inside of our own lives it 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 tells me how like arduous and how resentful we get about just having to like live an ordinary life where we have a garden and a dog and we make pasta on Sundays like that's like that's that's life that's what we're here that's what we're here to do I I, I attended a, a a service one of my favorite authors on the planet passed away a couple of years ago Barry Lopez and they did an online service for him with a whole bunch of different authors and, and his wife spoke and she said you know I I knew Barry is his wife. I wasn't involved so much in his, in his writing life and like hearing all of you about the fantastical things that he's done and the way he's written about them. She said, I have a much different take. I mean, we lived together for however many years and we, we fought about who was going to close the cupboards and we did chores and we had cats. And I nearly fell out of my chair. I just thought it was the most beautiful thing. I was like, that's it. You know, that's, that's, that's our life. And, and if we can't find beauty in those smaller moments, then we are going to be going after ribbon, after ribbon, after ribbon, after medal, after race, after race. And it's just never going to be enough until we can find that beauty in those smaller moments. So I do think that, that finding that comfort zone, finding the edges, no matter how quote unquote small or, or that they might be, I, I think is an extraordinarily important thing for us to do. And I think that the, well, the workshop that you did with at the noon retreat, it was definitely like a major light bulb moment in my own life with the goal setting process and putting words to kind of that process and how to move through it to transition to, you know, making your goals centered around who you want to be and how you want to feel. And um, as a coach, when I look at athletes that I work with, I find it just so prevalent. Like it just seems so natural for athletes in particular to kind of naturally go to this, that fear-based motivation for goal setting of, I have to control these things other, you know, if I don't do Ironman, people won't see me as a, a real athlete or things like that. Right. Like I have to do the longest distance and the biggest race and the scariest endeavors. And yeah. Yeah. it's just so prevalent for athletes to, to like get wrapped up in that. And do you think that's like a, you know, I'm just curious your take on like, is it a society? We have like a lack of patience. Do we all need, you know, mandatory therapy in our lives? Is it social media? Yeah. Like, you know, what, what is it that really makes it so prevalent in athlete circles? Yeah. I mean, to be really kind of blunt about it, I, I think I really, really think not all, this is a broad generalization, but I think the, 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 the majority of that really comes from um, tra traumatic background, like uh, capital T trauma or lowercase t trauma as we're going up, uh, as we're growing up. I think um, overworking, like, like um, let's say people who are driven to kind of unbelievable achievement, it's gotta be the longest distance. It's gotta be this much money. It's got it like this, this kind of real peg towards achievement. I think, that is our society's socially acceptable and socially rewarded uh, coping mechanism. Like that's the coping mechanism that is the most rewarded in our society. And I think what you've, what you've hit on a couple of times throughout this interview is that idea of like, okay, controlling the uncontrollable, like there's a, there's a control kind of aspect. And much of kind of like trauma in the nervous system and, and the work done there, there's a fabulous guy, Matt Licata, who's done a lot of work in this field who talks about our desire to gain more and more control, like more and more certainty, like tell me all the different ways my body can move and let's get, let, let me get more and more certainty about what I'm able to accomplish. And, and, and really like life is, that is not life. 
life is a very, very uncertain. Um, we've all been through this in such a huge way over the last, you know, three or four years. And, and really the goal is about gaining more and more comfort within the uncertainty, more and more comfort within the discomfort, as opposed to trying to control the, the various outcomes that are not controllable. And so I, I could go on a huge rabbit hole and, and kind of tangent here, but I think when we're kind of pegging our adrenaline at a certain place, we're, we're kind of attempting to control what's going on in, inside of our own nervous system. And so I, I think I think it's a healthier coping mechanism. I'll be really, really clear about that. And I think there's there's a lot of, of research and a lot of really, really interesting stuff coming out about is, is that another way of kind of like bypassing the places that are the crash? Like we, we often see this in athletics too, like the, um, the depression, like the post-event depression, like we have these crashes that are going on. And so um, I, I think that's really, really something for us to be paying attention to in the world of athletics is what, what has been the lead up like what, what is the desire for the control and what is the desire for the, um, for the achievement and, and, and going into those questions of, of why and what do we believe that's going to bring us and are we just trying to regulate a really unregulated nervous system and is there, are there different ways and other tools that we can be doing that? Yeah. And Steph, we often end our interviews by asking our guests, what's next? And that feels very antithetical to everything we've just talked about, especially, <laughs> you know, the control, sitting with things, being um, excited by the mundane. Um, is there a better way you think to, to um, you know, end a conversation or, or show that support. Cause I think we do it to show support for someone like, yeah. Oh, I know you've done this great thing, but you're always doing great things. Surely something else is on the horizon. Can we, you know, express that in a different way? Yeah. I think that's a beautiful question, right? This is, this is, this is inside of our society is that question. We get it. We get excited. We want to support. We want to hear, you know, hear more. And, um, I, I wonder if, if a question that is, you know, what's here, like what's now for you, you know, what we've talked about is actually a lot of what I've been through, like is a lot of, of past. And so I, I think a beautiful question is, you know, what's here for you, what's present in your life now, after you've been through these journeys. And what and, is it for you? Yeah, you yeah, yeah. And, and, and if that's, if that is the, if that is the question, I mean, I think what is present for me now is, um, moving into a, a summer and being inside of a summer of spaciousness. I, I, I really am feeling a desire to, I mean, that, that to me is the ingredient required for any of the what's next for any of the figuring out of that is, is spaciousness. And I've, I've, as I've moved through the last handful of years with a lot of creative pursuit, with a lot of athletic pursuit, with a lot of um, you know, book publication, all of that kind of stuff. I'm really looking forward to a season of, of being inside of spaciousness to kind of see, okay, Steph, where are you? What, what's happened? What, what, what is, what do you feel now? And, and how does that inform um, what you want to begin calling in when you're ready to do that? Yeah. Thank you so much, Steph, for joining. I'm so excited that I was able to kind of share your your words with the world because it, it truly was like, um, yeah, a major light bulb moment in my own life, I think, getting to kind of do that workshop with you a few years mm -hmm. ago. So mm -hmm. I think I will not be alone in people who say that after listening to this. And do you have a preference in where we can link people to, to be buying Unbound, Everything Left to Remember, um, and they can read some of your works? Yeah, I mean, you know, local books bookstores are always amazing. Um, Bookshop.org is a great place to um, to send people if they're buying online. Um, and uh, Instagram at Steph Jagger and on my website StephJagger.com are great places to reach out and stay in touch. And like, I am the human behind those accounts and answering those emails. So I always love it when I get to hear from people those ways. Thank you so much for sharing your time today. We appreciate it so much, Steph.
Thank you. Thanks so much to staff for coming on and for our listeners who are headed to Coeur d'Alene with Haley. I would highly recommend that your race week read of Steph's is Unbound, a story of snow and self-discovery, and that you save everything left to remember, kind of more the emotional side of things for post-race, but get yourself pumped up and read Unbound first, for sure. Thank you. Great advice. I might have to like, I, I haven't actually read that one, so I need to maybe look into getting the audiobook and I can listen to it on my drive. But I'm really excited about my race. I hope to see some of our listeners or, you know, hear some of them cheering. Cheer me on, please. Um, I'm like shamelessly asking for the cheers. Uh, but, you know, it, it, that's one of the things I do love about this community is when we actually get to interact in person. So looking forward to this week. And Alyssa, I hope you have a great recovery, continued recovery. Hope that things go smooth and your knee is feeling better each day. Thanks, Haley. I will be sending all the cheers out to Coeur d'Alene that I can from Vermont and wish you the best. Good luck. Have a great race week. Thanks, Alyssa. You've been listening to the Iron Women podcast hosted by Haley Chura and Alyssa Gadeski. Iron Women is a production of Feisty Media and is edited by Lydia Russell and produced by Ellen Natitian. Head to livefeisty.com to find more podcasts, stories, and fresh perspectives. Thanks for listening.